open your Bible this morning to the Gospel of John chapter 3. John chapter 3 this morning. As you're turning there, if, if you had had the opportunity to look at the lyrics of the songs we just sang side by side and take a moment just to actually think about what we're singing, you would have noted a theme to all of those songs. Yes, they're all God-honoring. Yes, they're all Christ-exalting. But all of them, at the core of them, were celebrating and honoring God's faithfulness, God's goodness, God's overpowering grace, and taking a soul that is in darkness, and He changing that soul by grace. He giving life. He giving birth. He giving a term we're going to be talking about this morning, regeneration to a soul lost in darkness, bound in sin, hating God. God doing a work of grace that could not be done otherwise, except God accomplishes it in the life of a believer. And then, out of that overflow of God's work, that soul then believes on the Lord Jesus Christ. All these hymns from the past that we just sang together all celebrate that theme. Glory to God. We would not be here spiritually if it were not His work of regeneration upon our souls. And that's what we'll be considering this morning. Last Lord's Day, as we were looking at the, the closing verses of John chapter 2, verses 23 to 25, in a message entitled, A Counterfeit Faith in the Face of an All-Knowing God. And again, I encourage you, words mean things. The words of that title are intended to unsettle us. A counterfeit faith in the face of an all-knowing God. We were left from that text, for many of us, with an unsettling truth that we uh, need to deal with. Is our faith what we think it is? Our first instinct is always, oh, I don't need to worry about that. But there is somebody else who needs to hear this message. But Jesus in John chapter 2, verses 23 through 25 says, no, everyone needs to search their hearts in light of the sobering words that we looked at last week. And it's this. We're told in verses 23 and 25, many believed in Jesus. They believed in His name. They believed in His works. They saw His signs. Many, not a few, not some, many, the masses were growing of those who professed Jesus is Lord. Jesus is King. Jesus is the Messiah. This is the one. No one but one from God could do the things that this man is doing. And yet Jesus says what? I do not give myself to you. For some of us last week, that was a very staggering realization. We have a less than adequate view of, God, of Jesus that he, he is so hungry for anyone to come into the kingdom. If anyone shows any belief in him, he's going to gladly take anyone. That's not who Jesus is. That's how we operate as churches a lot of times. We're just so eager for bodies, for souls, that we'll, just, we'll take anyone, anything. That's not how Jesus operates. Jesus says... I see all the masses following me, and they're saying all the right things, yet I do not give myself to them. Why? What was the reason? Because I know all things, and I know what's in their hearts. I hear what's coming from their lips, but I know all things, and I know what their profession of faith in me really is all about. And Jesus was revealing this sobering truth that the church of Jesus Christ must wrestle with in our day. Not all believing faith is saving belief. Last week we were confronted with Jesus' own words. There is a kind of belief in Jesus that will be accepted by the church of Jesus Christ, that looks right, sounds right, they say all the right things, they, they know the right things, they can preach, they can teach. All great things. It sounds genuine. But Jesus says, I'm telling you, I know the heart. It's not genuine. It's not true. It's shallow. It's disingenuous. And I, Jesus says, see right through it. 
and the sobering reality we were left with. A person with this kind of non-saving belief in Jesus may in fact know and believe very true things about Jesus. This person with this kind of non-saving belief in Jesus may actually believe in the supernatural works of Jesus, believe in the resurrection, and believe only God could do this thing. Jesus is God. You can believe that and go to hell. The person with this kind of non-saving belief in Jesus may in fact believe Jesus is the Messiah. And Jesus says, it's not salvation that's sent from God. It's not the kind of belief that God gives. And Jesus says, because I see what your faith in me is, I do not give myself to you savingly. Look again at verses 23 through, or we'll start at verse 24. Verse 23, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. Man, we read that. If you read the gospel, how many times do we stop there and say, glory, hallelujah. In fact, throughout the gospels, we come upon statements like that and we think, how wonderful. Man, we long to see that in our day. Keep reading. It's not what you think it is. Verse 24, but Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them. Why? That's so mean. Don't you want the kingdom to be as big as possible? Jesus says, I know what's in their hearts. Because he knew all people. And needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. That's the glory of Christ. These passages, every one of them, John has selected to reveal to us different manifestations of Christ's glory. That we would leave these passages and say, I have never seen one like this before. My heart is hungering and thirsting for one like this. Well, here's the glory of Christ. He doesn't need anybody to tell him what's in the heart. Case in point, Jesus' own words. And we reference this often on that last day. Many will stand before Jesus. And what does Jesus say? Depart from me. I never knew you. I never entrusted myself to you. And what are they doing in reply? They're going to try to tell Jesus, but no, no, let me tell you why you're wrong in this. Let me tell you about what I believe, what I taught, what I did. And what does Jesus say? Get out of here. You see, the gospel changes the heart. It changes our minds. It changes our thinking. It changes our treasures. It changes what we value from anything other than Christ to Christ. And Christ knows. Oh, I pray that the seed of last week didn't fall on fallow ground. Right? The parable of the seed and the sower. The Word of God falls on hard soil and we just, dis, we just ignore it. Or for a moment we think about it and then the animals come and take it and it's gone. Or we get out in the world and the weeds of the world choke it out and we just don't give it a second thought. We all know what that's about. I hope you feel the weight of Jesus' own words. He's revealing His glory here. I know what's in your heart. You can act and play and talk like you are righteous and good. <laughs> I know. And you better bring your heart and your soul before what I tell you the work of God and the life of a soul produces. And if it's not that, you better deal with it now. We transitioned this morning to chapter 3, and we, I hinted at this last week. You look at your Bibles, and you'll notice there's a chapter break here. So it gives the appearance that, well, all of chapter 2 was about Jesus' temple cleansing ministry, and that kind of section closes with verses 23 through 25. But thank goodness, that's over. (laughs) That was weighty. That was heavy. We can move now to chapter 3 and kind of get on. Oh, good, Nicodemus, thank you for coming, kind of breaking the tension here, Nicodemus. Appreciate it. What's next, Jesus? Right? Isn't that kind of where we are? But chapter 3 is not a transition to something different. The chapter break there is not inspired by God. It was not given by God. It's intended as a help. But this is not a transition to something new here. Chapter 3 is a continuation of what Jesus has said in verses 23 and 25. We're going to read the text here in just a moment. And I want you to think in terms 
uh, and this is why I took a few minutes to, to go back to last week, I want you to think in terms of what Jesus just said and then what we learn about Nicodemus who comes to, to Jesus. We, we, we just read that Jesus did not entrust himself to the many followers because, why? They were only following him because of his signs. Isn't that what the text says? And then notice in the next verse, chapter 3, we're going to have a man who comes to Jesus. Why? Because he was observing the signs that Jesus did. So this Nicodemus figure is example one of the kind of person Jesus is talking about. The title of the message this morning, The Necessity of Being Born from Above. The Necessity of Being Born from Above. Let's read together John chapter 3. Our focus this morning will only be the first three verses, but I'll read verses 1 through 15. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know you are a teacher come from God. Is that a right statement? He's dead on. No one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. That's a pretty sound profession of faith. And Jesus answered him. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter into his, a second time into his mother's womb and be born? And Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I say to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit, capital S, the Holy Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? Jesus answered him, are you the teacher of Israel? And yet you don't understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I've told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the servant in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. There is so much at stake in this passage. Let's pray. It's all we can do. Father, we come to you this morning. And we ask you just for a teachable spirit. We ask you, Father, for a spirit to understand the words of our Savior. We live in a today, a day today, Father, where gospel ignorance runs rampant. We think we know, but we don't. And you warn all throughout sacred scripture. The day of reckoning will be a wake-up call for so many. Because they lived upon what they thought they knew. Not upon the words of Christ. Lord, may we here at Covenant Life Church be different. May we be a people who are hungry and earnest for our King. Who are listening to His words. And even when our flesh cringes, even when our minds want to reject and not believe what it is the text is telling us. Father, would you overwhelm that? And give us a heart to believe that we too might see our king in his kingdom forever. Lord, we can only do what we can do. Now we ask and plead with you to do what only you can do. Change our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. John chapter 3. Most of us are familiar with the story of Nicodemus. Most of us could stand and talk about the, the theme here of needing to be born again. I've been helped greatly by J.C. Ryle. Some of you are reading his commentary alongside with us as we, as we read each week. J.C. Ryle says this about John chapter 3, this episode with Nicodemus. He says this, quote, The conversation between Christ and Nicodemus, which begins with these verses is one of the most important passages in the whole Bible. Let me just pause there. We're going to come back to that quote. 
But did you know that? Did you know, have you read Nick, this John chapter 3, this incident? Have you, when you come upon it, do you see it as one of those foundational texts that, that you really you build your understanding of salvation from? Is this, this is one of those. This is what Ryle is telling us. And I'm just using Ryle. There are many others who say the same thing. My hunch is for most of us, we, we're not aware of how significant and important this passage is. Ryle continues. Nowhere else do we find stronger statements about those two mighty subjects. What mighty subjects? The new birth and salvation by faith in the Son of God. The servant of Christ will, be, will do well to make himself thoroughly acquainted with this chapter. Just knowing this Nicodemus story is not enough. In light of what Jesus said last week in chapter 2, verses 23 to 25, if your soul is, is wrestling with these things, Ryle says you need to be deeply entrenched into the message of this narrative. This is the answer to what, why Jesus would not entrust himself to those. These are those that Jesus entrusts himself to. And Raul closes with this. A man may be ignorant of many things in religion and be saved. Amen. You don't have to know everything to be a Christian. It's not Gnosticism. But be ignorant of the matters in this chapter is to be in the broad way that leads to destruction. To be a Christian, you don't have to know everything. But there are certain core things you have to know and live upon and find these things to be true in you, because if they're not, you cannot be saved. You will not be saved. And John chapter 3 is just that message. Again, the title of the message this morning, The Necessity of Being Born from Above. So the Apostle John has chosen this story, again, out of the, all the many stories that he could tell us about Jesus and that he could have plugged into this section on the heels of Jesus' statement at the close of chapter 2, he records this story because he wants to demonstrate for us the only faith that saves, the only faith that Jesus entrusts himself to is a faith that comes not from you, but from God. There is a difference. The only faith that Jesus entrusts himself, the only faith that Jesus looks into the soul and says, that's genuine, that's real, is the faith that he says has come from my Father. And if I don't see the stamp of what my Father produces in a soul, I do not entrust myself to it. And this life that God gives a soul has been called different things through the ages. Born again, we kind of, that term has called, fallen out of, out of uh, liking, not because there's anything wrong with it, but back in the 60s and 70s, being born again came to me something far less than what Jesus is talking about here. And so for a generation, they hear being born again and immediately think of back to the 60s and 70s, some very shallow, man-centered, something you do. And that's not what, Jesus is talking about here. So that term has kind of fallen out of favor just because it does kind of bring some confusion in. We're going to talk about it in just a few minutes. Born again, the Greek here is literally born from above. Again is a, a translation of it, but everywhere in John's gospel that this Greek word is used, it's always translated above. Born from above. So this new life that Jesus says God gives is being born from above, or theologically we call it regeneration. This morning we're looking at the necessity of being born again. Over the next, next week we'll be looking at two other aspects of this story. We're going to stay with Nicodemus for uh, another week at least, where we'll think about the impossibility of being born again. And then either also next week or in a third week we'll be looking at the experience of being born from above. The necessity, the impossibility, the experience. When we look at Nicodemus, at first glance, if there's anyone who deserved to enter the kingdom of God, 
It would have been Nicodemus. Nicodemus was a man of the Pharisees, we're told in verse 1. A ruler of the Jews. But we've heard that Pharisee title before. What is a Pharisee? We tend to um, categorize them in with that self-serving, legalistic, holier-than-thou, outward-show-off hypocrites. And and that is a broad characterization that's true. But more, more truthfully, what was a Pharisee? Well, they were a group of Jews mostly middle-class businessmen. They were not the the priests and the Levites. Sometimes there's some confusion that the Pharisees were the religious elites. Well, they were religious, but they weren't the priests and Levites who were in the temple doing all those things. They were businessmen. But they were a people who who stressed observation of the law. They stressed God's laws, Sabbath and tithing and circumcision and ceremonial cleanliness and eating only certain foods and fasting and observing. So they were were middle-class businessmen who were very, very serious about the law. And when it came to right thinking about God and what God demands, they were right about a lot of things. A lot of the things they believed were good and true. Their desire to obey God was noble, was admirable, was was a good thing. Their belief in the resurrection, the existence of angels, they had right beliefs. And Nicodemus was one of these people. One commentator says, though, that Pharisees made one very basic and tragic error. They externalized religion. Now, you've got to contemplate that for a little bit and let your own soul wrestle with that in our modern day. Because we've said... For years now, the gospel is an inside out. It begins inside. And as our inside is conformed to the likeness of Christ, we begin to see conformity to Christ on the outside. For these guys, and for many today, religion is just, the inside is dead, but on the outside, we try to make it look like life. We make it look like religion, make it look like we're serious about God through the things we say, the things we do, the things we don't do, but meanwhile, the inside is dead. And that's what Pharisees were. Outward conformity to the law was far too often the goal of their existence. They would sit and listen to the preaching of the word, and on the inside, it meant nothing. It was dead. They could leave the preaching of the word and just kind of like, I don't get it. I don't get it. I don't, I don't see what the big deal is about. Why has he preached so long? Why, 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 so, I mean, why so hard? Why so mean? I just, it, just, I don't, it just bounces off. But on the outside, they're going to act like they're super spiritual. I was a Pharisee. And this is the group here that Nicodemus belonged to. We're also told he's a ruler of the Jews. That means he was part of the Jewish council. You kind of think about the Supreme Court and Congress in our country. It's kind of those two things combined. So this was a man who was was religious, who was involved. Um, He was absolutely a a well-respected person in the day in which he lived. And verse 2 tells us that this religious man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. So not only is Nicodemus a Pharisee and a, a member of the Sanhedrin, but he knows right things about Jesus. Don't rush past this. This is the whole point, or at least this is setting up the whole point. Nicodemus knew all about Jesus. He had seen the signs that Jesus did. He knew a Messiah was coming. Nicodemus looked and said, only one sent from God could do these things. Jesus, you are the Messiah. There's no other explanation for how you're able to do the things I've seen you do. And not only that, he, he, notice how he approaches Jesus and the things he says. He says, Rabbi, which just simply means teacher. He calls Jesus a teacher. He recognizes Jesus has come from God. He recognizes that Jesus does these true miracles. He recognizes the miracles that that, uh, Jesus does could not be done by anybody else unless that person is sent from God. So he recognizes God is with Jesus. Now, let's just stop there for a minute. Let's say you're talking to a friend and maybe you're a little bit concerned about their salvation and you're talking about their testimony and they say to you, Listen, here's what I believe. I believe believe Jesus is God. I believe Jesus was sent by. I believe he's the Messiah. I I believe he rose from the dead. I believe um, uh, he he is who he claimed to be. Correct me if I'm wrong, but don't most of us hear those things and we say, I feel better. 
I didn't know about your salvation, but hearing those things, that's exactly what I believe too. Am I wrong in that? The very things Nicodemus were saying, now let's, let's just take ourselves out of the story because we know what Jesus is going to say to him. But let's, let's apply this if your coworker or your child or your grandchild says to you these things. Jesus is, was a, man, a teacher sent from God. And, and man, he, the many miracles he did showed off his power. Man, there's no one like Jesus. He's almighty in power. Truly, he's God. Yes, he died on the cross. Yes, he rose again. I believe those things. Aren't those the very things we say, I don't have to worry now. Those are the things a believer believes. We need to be a little bit unsettled at this point. Because those are the things Nicodemus believes. And yet Jesus says what to him? You must be born from above. All the things that Nicodemus says are genuine, they're true. And notice Jesus does not rebuke him for what he says about Jesus. Jesus doesn't say, no, 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 that's not, he's absolutely right. You are true, you are right. But Jesus' own assessment of Nicodemus' confession is this. You're not a true believer. In verse 10, Jesus says that Nicodemus doesn't understand what Jesus is saying. Are you the teacher of Israel? Jesus says to him, and yet you don't understand these things? You're saying all the right things, but right here you have no concept of the weight and the gravity and how these things change a soul. Verse 11, Jesus says Nicodemus doesn't receive his witness. In verse 12, Jesus says, ultimately, Nicodemus, you're not a believer. These are not the descriptions of a true believer. Acknowledging that Jesus is sent from God. Acknowledging that Jesus is all-powerful. Acknowledging that Jesus is a good teacher who teaches the wisdom of God. Acknowledging that God is with Jesus. Acknowledging that historically, narratively, Jesus did die on a cross and he did raise from the dead. None of that is the description of a true believer. Oh, God, please open our eyes and ears to understand this. Because we are living in a day, and for generations now, have promised people welcome to the kingdom of God because they've said the right things, and yet they have a heart that is completely dead to the things of Christ. They have no interest in Christ, no love for Christ. No, they respect Christ. They know right things about Christ and they preach from pulpits and teach in Sunday school classes and yet have no zeal, no burning heart for Jesus at all. And they think it's okay. Because somewhere along the line, some church, some pastor welcomed them. Come be baptized, man. We're not even going to evaluate what's in your heart. Just come, let's be baptized. We welcome to the kingdom of God. We're going to have a church fellowship afterwards. We're going to celebrate I promise you, Jesus is not hard up to fill his kingdom with anyone who just gives an empty profession of faith. This is why J.C. Ryle says things like, this is a chapter that you must drink from the fountain, you must meditate upon it, and you must search your own soul in light of it. Jesus has captured Nicodemus' mind the miracles of Jesus have captured his, his eyes. But Jesus is exposing here what has not been captured is his heart. And that's the difference. Going back to some of us read not too long ago, the true Christian's love for the unseen Christ. What is it that Vincent says there? You can be religious, you can teach, you can preach, you can do all these kinds of things. But throughout church history, throughout biblical history, the line of demarcation for what a true believer is, is not what you say. It is where are your affections. And that's what Jesus, the one who chapter 2, 23 through 25 just said, I know all things. I know where your affections are. I know what you love most. And because you don't love me most, I do not entrust myself to you. Go back and look at the seven churches of Asia Minor. We spent so much time individually on those, and maybe you heard, maybe you didn't hear. Jesus is walking among those churches and indicting them 
Because although, hey, they're great in number, they're coming together, they're saying, he's sipping of their heart. I spit you out of my mouth. Because your heart is not unto me. Jesus said of himself, John says of Jesus in chapter 1, the true light which enlightens everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. People knew things about Jesus, but they didn't receive him. And it wasn't because of lack of information. It was because what Jesus says to Nicodemus next. You haven't been born from above. The contrast between Nicodemus and Jesus' disciples in John chapter 1 is striking. We can look at Nicodemus' own words and the titles he uses for Jesus. Teacher, one come from God. No one can do these things except they come from you. God is with you. But go back and look at what, when Jesus was calling his first disciples, what they said in compare and contrast. You'll see, Nicodemus says right things, but it's, there's a, a passion, a heart, an affection that's missing from what the disciples said to him. For instance, John the Baptist calls him the Lamb of God. And we talked about what John meant when he talked about that lamb, who that lamb was going back to the Passover. He looks at Jesus and he sees so much more. Andrew called him the Messiah. Philip called him one, the one that Moses wrote about. Nathaniel called him the Son of God, the King of Israel. And again, that's not just because they said the right things. They, they used better terminology than Nicodemus said. We're going to trace these disciples all throughout Jesus' public ministry. And we're going to see these were men whose hearts were devoted and clinging to Christ. For Nicodemus, Jesus is just a figure. And though Nicodemus says all the right things, he's religious. Verse 3, Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, Nicodemus, unless one is born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. We're told previous to this, it was the signs that drove Nicodemus to go and follow Jesus. Well, what has John already told us the purpose of the signs are? The purpose of the signs are to see the glories of Christ and to be so enamored, captivated, enraptured by the one who does these signs that we give everything to him, to follow him, to have him. The purpose of the signs is that true belief that God would open our eyes to behold the glory of Christ and, and having seen and believed, we would give everything to Him. Is that what has taken place in Nicodemus' life? He has seen those same signs, but what's lacking is he has an awareness that only God could do these things. But primarily, his amazement is with the signs themselves. So Jesus, the seer and knower of all hearts, says, Nicodemus, truly, truly. I, he could not be more emphatic there. Who talks like that? Truly, truly. That's him saying, I'm stamping this. This is the reality. Unless you're born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. And therein, isn't Jesus demonstrating exactly what he said in verses 23 through 25? What was the reason he doesn't entrust him? Because I see and know what's in their hearts. I know what's there. No one needs to tell me what's in Nicodemus' heart. I don't need to sit and listen. Nicodemus, tell me your testimony. Tell me, talk, talk, to, me about, talk to me about who I am to you. Let me, let me listen close. Jesus doesn't need that. He says, I see clearly, perfectly into Nicodemus' heart. And Nicodemus, your great need is to be born again. And here's... here's Ultimately, what gets Jesus put on a cross? Because the Sanhedrin to whom Nicodemus belongs to, they're, they're pretty much the leading party to get Jesus out of the way. What did Jesus just do with Nicodemus? He just swept everything Nicodemus held dear 
just swept it out and said it's meaningless. It means nothing. I asked a question a couple of weeks ago of you and of my own soul. How do you respond when someone brings a word of correction to you? You remember that? And we talked about how, you know, I get angry, get frustrated. I turn it on. Well, who are you? Let's talk about your stuff. Well, that's what Jesus is doing here to Nicodemus. And Jesus is coming and and just obliterating everything Nicodemus would have held dear and everything Nicodemus would have said, here, Jesus, of course I'm a true disciple. Jesus says, I see right through it. It's meaningless. It means nothing. Zero. We talked about that last week. He's sweeping aside all that Nicodemus stood for and all of his spiritual achievements. And Jesus looks at Nicodemus and please God, where necessary, every one of us in the eyes this morning and says, I take no delight in anything you've ever done. Your great need this morning is to be born by my Father. That's your great need, O oh, religious spiritual one. You see the problem with Nicodemus. Fundamentally, he was just like you and I. Born into sin. Born with a sin nature. A sin nature he inherited his, from his father, which ultimately was inherited from his first parents, Adam and Eve. And that sin alienated him from God. That sin put him on a path toward hell. The wages of sin is death. Separation from God eternally. And beloved, we're not just going to stand here this morning and pick on Nicodemus. Step forward if anyone here wants, wants to claim you're better than Nicodemus. That you're in any better condition than he is. The answer is no. Every one of us born with the same sin nature as Nicodemus. We got it from our parents, God bless them, who got it from their parents, who ultimately got it from our first parents, Adam and Eve. All born, everyone a sinner, everyone in need of a Savior, everyone hating God, every one of us. Even the religious, hating God. And Jesus says to all of us, you must be born again. But what does that mean? Well, Lord willing, we'll be talking more about this next week. But, because Ryle said, and I quoted it a minute ago, a man may be ignorant of many things in religion and yet be saved, but be ignorant of the matters handled in this chapter is to be in the broad way which leads to destruction. We at least need to say a few things this morning about what it means to be born again. Most people, this is the generation I grew up in, so it would have been the generation you grew up in. And if you were saved from this, praise God for it. My hunch is for most of us, we're still knee-deep in it, thigh-high deep in it, head-deep in it, and we cringe when we hear this. But you're going to have to take it up with God. Most people in our day read this statement from Jesus to Nicodemus, you must be born again, and they take that to be a command. Now, what's a command? It would be Jesus telling Nicodemus, Nicodemus, here's what you need to do. Nicodemus, I'm the seer of all things. I look into your heart. I see what's there. I do not give myself to you. I sweep away everything, and now I command you. Here's what you need to do, Nicodemus. You need to be born again. That's how most in our day receive this. That is not what Jesus says. The Greek here is not an imperative. Imperative is a grammatical word that means a command. It is not in the imperative mood. What we have here is a passive voice. What's a passive voice? Somebody who, who teaches English or knows grammar, what is a passive voice? You have a subject and an action. In an active voice, the subject is what? Doing the action, right? He's active in the action. What's passive voice? The subject is being acted upon. He's passive. He's being acted upon. Jesus uses the passive voice here. He's not saying, Nicodemus, here's what you need to do. He's saying, Nicodemus, here's what has to happen to you. Here's 
what God has to do to you for me to give myself to you. Look at verse 3 again. Truly I say to you, unless you're born again, not an imperative, do this, unless you're born from above, where my Father is. Unless my Father births life into your empty soul, you cannot see the kingdom of God. Jesus is not commanding Nicodemus to do anything. This morning, the command is not for you and I to do. This again goes back to Ryle who says, this is a chapter you have to drink from the fountain. You have to give yourself to. You have to understand what this is saying because if you don't, there are thousands of people who think millions of people, multitudes of people who think they have done what was necessary to go into the kingdom of God. When there is nothing necessary to be done to the kingdom of God. Because it's the work of God and the soul of man. He's telling Nicodemus here, not what Nicodemus has to do. He's telling Nicodemus what God must do for him to enter into the kingdom of God. And he's saying, Nicodemus, you must receive a birth that comes from my father. Think about your own natural birth, because Jesus is, is piggybacking off of this, your own natural birth. Think back, you remember the day you were born? Of course not. You don't remember. And that's not because some of you, have, it was a long time ago, it's because we were infants, newborns. We don't remember it. So I'm guessing you don't remember telling your mom or dad if you wanted to be a boy or a girl before you were born. I don't guess you remember telling them what day you wanted to be born. I bet your parents would have appreciated that, could have planned and prepared a little bit better. You don't remember being, even telling someone, I want to be born. You just, by the gift of God, were a gift to your parents in the womb, and in the fullness of God's timing, came forth and were born. Were you active or passive in your birth? Please don't say active. That would be weird. You were passive. Jesus is using the same metaphor there to communicate that what's true of a physical birth is true of a spiritual birth. And this is exactly what Jesus has already said. This is not like new information. John chapter 1. John said this, As many as received him, to them what had already happened. He gave life to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name, who were born, not of blood, not of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man. No, no active, active thing going on. It, it was completely passive. Not of the blood, not of the will, not of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of what? You finish it. Of God. He gave those the right to, to be children of God. Those who were what? Born of God. This is exactly what he's telling Nicodemus. This is not, we've never heard this before. We've never, this, is, this is the gospel. It's always been the gospel. Unless we think John himself was a little bit kooky in his theology. What is it that Peter said in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3? Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. What? Who, according to his great mercy, has caused us to be born again to a living hope. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His great mercy, He caused us to be born again to a living hope. Active or passive? God's the active one there. He caused us. Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1, he talks about we're all dead in trespasses and sins. And then in verse 5, Paul says this, even when we were dead in trespasses, Fill in the blank. Blank made us alive together with Christ. Did you make yourself alive together with Christ? Who? Who made you alive together with Christ? God. Jesus. God made you alive together with Christ. He did it. Paul writes in Titus chapter 3, God saved us. We're about to sing a song. 
about this same thing. God saved us not because of works of righteousness we have done, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration. There's your word. You think, that's a biblical word. He has done it by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Spirit. That's exactly what Jesus is saying to Nicodemus. Paul is writing, this is how we're born from above, the washing of regeneration, the work of the Holy Spirit, being born from above. And Jesus is just sharing that with Nicodemus. That's always been the gospel. How anybody becomes a Christian, it's the work of God in the life of a soul. So being born from above is not something you do or I do. It's the divine act of God alone. We'll be taking that a little bit further in the next, next week. So bear with us. I wanted to give you enough this morning because I'm convinced, even in my own soul, that the Lord is dealing with some of our hearts this morning. And I don't want you confused. I don't want you walking out of here saying, you know what? I'm convicted. I'm going to do. You've just created a whole other gospel that's no gospel at all. You must fall on your face before this God and you beg and you plead and you cry out to this God. What Jesus is talking about is a radical rebirth that God works in us. And in this rebirth, what is the work of God upon the soul of a man? Jeremiah talks about it. All right, the new covenant, the covenant that God makes with his people. I will give you a new what? New heart. And with that new heart, in the, in the Bible, the heart is kind of the, the breeding ground of everything else. With that heart comes a new mind, new hopes, new values, new loves, new treasures, new affections. Being born from above, God, through the Holy Spirit, gives a new heart, a heart that is filled with love for Christ. A new mind, a new will. And Jesus, who looks into the heart and knows all hearts well, when he does not see a heart that loves him, treasures him, is satisfied in him, hopes in him, is conformed to him, delights in him, he says, you have no place in the kingdom. I don't care what you know, what you think you know, how religious you think you are. I'm looking at the heart. Why this discussion about the new birth? And we'll close with this. Jesus' interest here, nor is it mine. Jesus' interest is not, nor is it mine, to create theological debate. I have no interest in arguing. We can sit down and discuss, but no interest in arguing. Well, that's your view of salvation. Here's my view of salvation, blah, 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 blah. Go back to Ryle. You have to wrestle with this text. Not just the words as you think you should interpret them. You have to interpret them as God has every word, every phrase, every tense, every voice, every mood, every uh, uh, voice in it. You're going to have to wrestle with those things. And if you're still going to argue with God, you take that up with him. But my point here, that's not what Jesus is trying to do here. Jesus' point here is what? The kingdom of God. That's really what this is about. And what is the kingdom of God? Well, it's like any other kingdom on earth. You have a ruler, you have a people who live under that king. All the kingdoms of this earth, they've either, they rise to prominence and then they're gone. Another one rises to prominence and they're gone. There is one kingdom that is an eternal kingdom. It is the kingdom of God where Jesus is king and every life is lived out of a heart of love and devotion to King Jesus, a life of obedience, worship, faithfulness, service to Jesus. That's the kingdom of God. That's what's most precious to Jesus. Him being glorified eternally in the hearts and lives of a people who are infatuated with him. You see why he rejects anyone who doesn't have a heart that's infatuated with him? Because that's what's most important, his kingdom. And that's 
what's necessary to have a life of eternity before Christ and to give him what he's worthy of, what he deserves, what he's earned through his life, death, and resurrection. That's nothing you can do. I'm, I'm really in eternity. I'm going to try my hardest, give my best. No, you must be, have, receive a heart from God that's filled with these things. And that, that's the reality of a, the new birth. Without that heart, and when people die, we're always so quick. I can't wait to see them again in heaven. I don't think I'd have the courage to do it, but I'd love to see someone preach John 2, 23 through 25 at a funeral message. I say, wait, wait just a moment. We presume so many things that God just is going to get as many people in as he, as he can. No. Heaven's not about as many people as possible. It's about hearts that are infatuated with him. That's what the kingdom is about. Now let me ask you, as I have to ask myself, what is your hope of your place in that kingdom? Do you find in your heart today, not right knowledge about Jesus, right theology about Jesus, Nicodemus covered all those bases, and yet Jesus said, you have no place. You must be born from above. You must be given this heart. We're going to talk more about this next week. Friends, you can like me, not like me, get tired of my messages, hate me. I, don't, I wish that weren't the case, but so be it. Fine. Skip me and go to what Jesus is saying here. At the end of the day, it doesn't matter what you've done. Not what your hands have done, not what your feet have done, not what your mind thinks. It's Jesus, the most important thing to you? Are you clinging to him and him alone? Have you died to self, died to your wants, died to your desires? Because it's now Christ's life, Christ's desires, what he wants. If you find that's not even in your heart, beloved, Jesus' words to Nicodemus are his words to you. Let's kick all this junk to the side, this religious, good theology. You've been a preacher, you've been a teacher. All this doesn't mean anything. You must be born again. That's the necessity of being born from above. With God's help, next Lord's Day, we're going to continue on this meditation of this passage, considering not only the necessity of it, the impossibility of it. Hang with us on it. Read ahead. You'll see the impossibility of it. And then the experience of it. What it truly produces. For now, let the Holy Spirit have his work upon your soul. Don't rush past this. Don't presume you're not in the same shoes as Nicodemus. Let the Spirit have his work upon your heart. Trusting not in your work. Have you been born from above? And have this heart. It's all about Jesus.